podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Chelsea's dodgy Kepper. Hello, welcome to episode 32. Yes, if you're marking your scorecards at home, it's number 32 with the Real Football Cast. I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days, while in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye, and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. It's time for another afternoon recording, and Carl is making his first team spot his own. Let's hope he has another match-winning performance up his sleeve this afternoon. Carl, how have things been with you, my friend? Yeah, really good, Ben. Good to be back talking all things Premier League, mate, and, uh, and football in general. Yeah, it makes a difference in trying to sort of pad out the show with the FA Cup chat from last week. So we're back in full swing, thankfully. So don't worry about that. Before we chat all things football, I'd best do some social media bits first. Otherwise, I'll be talking to the abyss once more. So first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. Anything show related, send it my way. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. If you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. Or the easiest way to find all the links is by going to realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. What is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's a game that sees betting turned on its head with the focus being on the loser. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit loserpool.com and create an account. Especially as there's a new prize pool which guarantees a winner £1,000. Something you won't want to miss out on. Now, the odds of winning are great. They're even better if you sign up. And more importantly, it's free to play at the moment. So there's nothing stopping you. Right then, it's time to go... Live. Where should we go first? Let's go to Wembley and the small matter of the Carabao Cup final. One that, in all fairness, was an incredibly tough watch after the back of the events of Old Trafford earlier in the day. More of that later. So, Carl, City were the winners, but Chelsea making the headlines for all the wrong reasons. What do you make of goalkeeper Gate, and has that undermined Richo Sarri once and for all? Is this player power going a step too far? I, I think so, Dan. I mean, I think, you know, I, I don't know whether it was a couple of weeks ago or that, but we discussed kind of Chelsea and their managerial kind of merry-go-round that they seem to go on every year. Um, and we kind of said then that, you know, it's over the years, the players look to have had the power at that club um, over too many managers. And I think, again, we've seen Sunday that that is the case, isn't it? Um, and we've seen a massive case of undermining your manager there that you kind of find it hard to feel that there's any way out um, other than Sarri, you know, potentially losing his job in the next couple of weeks if results don't go their way. So, yeah, really bizarre one. I mean, I know, you know, it is quite funny now that obviously Chelsea are trying to come out and say it was just a misunderstanding and everything like that. But then today, you know, they, they've issued um, Kepa with a week's fine. So I don't see how you can come out and say one minute it's a misunderstanding and then all of a sudden you find the player um, for the incident that happened because that is clearly saying that there was an issue there that's been dealt with internally in the club. So it's not a misunderstanding, is it? There clearly was. He was bringing Caballero on for the penalty shootout, which I think we've only seen a couple of times before in football. You know, I think I remember it happening um, in a World Cup with Holland when That's they right, brought yeah. Tim Crow on for the penalty shootout and they won. Um, and that clearly was what Sarri was trying to do with that sub at the end of the game, wasn't he? Um, and, and any rubbish about just a misunderstanding at no point. 
any of that reaction was based on a misunderstanding. You know, they were trying to make a tactical sub to win the penalty shootout, and the keeper has blatantly just disrespected his manager. Um, and again, it just goes to show you, no, you know, the players just are not with any manager, it seems, there at the moment, because the feeling is, if we don't play for this guy, he'll get the boot, the next one to come in. Um, I think that is something Chelsea seriously need to look at internally and starting to change if they want to have any kind of, you know, real long-term future under any manager. Because for me, that job's becoming a complete unattractive job right now because as a manager you'd know you go in there and you probably won't have the backing should it turn sour um, and also with something like a transfer ban now for two for two windows then you know that that is going to cause some real issues as well isn't it yeah I mean the thing with a Chelsea job now the only attractive thing is probably the payoff you get for not fulfilling the length of your contract you not think yeah sure <laughs> you kind of take that job thinking well look worst case scenario is I finish outside the top four and I'll end up making five or six million in a compensation when I get sacked. So, you know, who cares if I fail or succeed going in? Because either way, I'm going to come out, you know, a rich man. Does that create something of a dangerous precedent because of that? You think, okay, well, if it all goes wrong, I'm six million pounds richer. So, you know, there's probably not the greater desire or the greater incentive. You're almost allowed to coast knowing that your ten is going to be short if you sort of don't hit the target you're expected to do. So surely that creates a sort of a dodgy sort of setting from the off, really. I, I guess, you know, as you say, you know, I think any manager who's taken a Chelsea job recently knows that if you go in and you start winning trophies early doors, then you'll be fine. But the minute you get a few bad results or a run of bad form and then you upset a few of the players, the chances are you'll be out. So... It's been an attractive proposition, Chelsea, isn't it? Because with Abramovich there and the kind of infrastructure and the squad that they've got, most managers would have fancied managing that squad of players and probably felt they could get them to, you know, push for a title and win trophies. Um, but yeah, I think now this this kind of stuff now and the fact that Chelsea are not going to be the side anymore that spend the big money. You know, Abramovich is not as interested as he used to be by the looks of it in spending that money. Then I think they are becoming less and less um, attractive, possibly to bigger name managers, knowing that you know if that's the backing I'm going to get when a player blatantly you know goes against me like that, then you know maybe I'll stay away from that job. Is that a sense with, I guess, even with the point of sorry, that Chelsea are now looking down the list in terms of managers? They're not able to attract the top tier that they were, you know, five, ten years ago. And now it's that sort of second tier, second bracket of manager calibre that they're going to have to keep continuing looking at. Because if sorry does go as expected, they can't really pull out, a, you know, an elite manager, can they? Because, like you say, it's not really that kind of, um, I guess, you know, an attractive proposition to anyone of the ilk of, I don't know, Guardiola, Enrique... Or have they almost burnt through everyone at the same time? Yeah, I mean, you kind of wonder about who they could get next, haven't you? Because, you know, that's in all fairness to them, you know, I mean, I suppose the problem is as well, they'll look and say their models worked, haven't they, over the years? You know, they've consistently been winning trophies. So some people will say, well, our model works for us because we bring someone in. If they're not a success, we get rid of them. We get an interim or something. They possibly win us an FA Cup. And then we go again the next season. And, you know, we'll just repeat that process if it doesn't work with with that guy. But at some point, you must want to have a long-term solution in there and a long-term plan that's going to work under a certain manager. Um, because you, you can't keep, as you say, you can't keep burning through 
in you know international top managers and you know they were also doing that as you said while they were at champions league football behind them and the fact that if they don't get that again this year then that kind of diminishes the kind of appeal to certain managers in the game that think oh well actually yeah what why bother they're not in the champions league again so yeah it's not as attractive a proposition as it was say three or four years ago but i'm sure you know i'm sure they'd be someone out there who'd fancy it but i'm like you you kind of scratch your head to think who could they turn to next yep um in terms of the actual game itself man city of course they won the game by virtue of a penalty shootout it almost didn't get that far though did it because once again var was in the spotlight the decision of aguero's goal was not given so with var ultimately an offside decision is still subjective it's not the ref it's someone in a room somewhere he's watching it on telly and he has to make the decision so due to the I guess the fractions or the inches that were involved in that one, the tightness of the call, is it one where you can't really blame VAR because someone has to make a tricky decision somewhere down the line? Yeah, that that was, um, I found it really interesting because when you first saw just the normal replays, it looked quite clear that Aguero was offside, to be honest. And you thought, yeah, no, that, that one's a clear cut case of he was just in front of the defender. But then once they put those VAR lines on the screen, it actually seemed like his foot was in line, you know, him and um, Rudiger's feet were kind of in line as such at the same point. So it kind of started looking a little bit more like, oh, actually, you know, you could see someone possibly giving a goal at this point. And I think that's where VAR, on that sort of decision, I think that's where you are better off just sticking with the decision that's been made because you could probably get 100 people in a room and 50 at that point would look at that replay and say, well, for me, it's a goal. And then 50 would say, no, he's just offside for me. So, yeah, that that was a real hard one to call. Um, But it it was actually closer on VAR than it looked. And it does sort of show that, yeah, there will be times where VAR still isn't a clear-cut you know, answer because you are then dependent on what someone in a room looking at a TV screen thinks. Um, which is why, for me, I still believe VAR should be used with a screen on the side of the pitch and the referee goes over and views it and makes a call himself. Because at least then that way, you know that, you know, if there is one ref out there who keeps dropping real clangers, even though they're looking at VAR, then that referee can be kind of dealt with and trained if need be, or even if anything, you know you know, drop down a few leagues so that they're not working on the top flight. I mean, we've seen one in the Spanish league, didn't we, at the weekend, that that went to VAR, and that is an absolute horrendous decision that even going to VAR, Real Madrid get that penalty that they do, because whoever was looking at that, it, you know, you'd kind of, you'd want to see them questioned as to what are you looking at here that's made you give a penalty for this? Yeah, I guess you sort of need that element of consistency that you've got a referee on the pitch who's making decisions, but then you've got technology, so why not let the referee use the technology, not the technology being used by someone else? So there's a disconnect there. And I think there's also a disconnect um, with Chelsea. I think it was them. Do you know what? I'm trying to sort of switch off from the game at that point. It got a bit boring. But I believe in the second half, Chelsea were clearly on the break and the linesman's flag went up. And usually with VAR, in the first leg against Tottenham, the flag stayed down and Harry Kane got a penalty awarded. So we've got a disconnect there because two linesmen or two assistant referees aren't going to the same letter of the rule book now, are they? Yeah, I mean, and, and this is why, yeah, this will be where you can understand people questioning VAR being brought in. You know, there has to be those clear guidelines, don't, don't there? You know, linesmen either have to be told, you don't put your flag up at all. And we just let it play out and then we review it. And if it does turn out he was offside, then we disallow the goal. 
or you always put your flag up. And, you know, as you say, you can't have a certain linesman doing one thing and then another linesman doing something different. You know, there, there must be clear, clear guidelines on what they must do in certain situations. And if we're going to make it work, then they, those are the things that they need to iron out and make sure everyone's playing by the same rule book and that all the linos know what they're doing there. It's no, I'm not putting my flag up. We're going to see how this goes and then we'll review it at some point afterwards. But there's got to be clear guidelines because at the moment, VAR is, you know, VAR is Marmite, isn't it? Some people love it. Some people hate it. The people that hate it will look at these examples and use them as reasons why it shouldn't be brought in. Yeah, I think that's it, really. They'll sort of try and find their faults and use that as a stick to sort of beat the the VAR supporters. And you're not going to get it right now but you need to sort of keep using it you can't sort of get to this point and think okay well let's put it back in a box and just forget it ever happened like it is coming so we might as well keep using it and get it to that almost perfect point and hopefully you know by the start of next season but in terms of the penalties far from perfect from a Chelsea point of view Jorginho not been covering himself in glory as of late with some indifferent performances but what on earth was that penalty all about because if there's a time I guess to be cute and there's certainly players you can do that Hazard being the perfect example moments later let's be honest that was a rotten spot kick wasn't it I find it funny, Dan, isn't it? But I think Kepper has kind of saved Jorginho's blushes here yes, a little bit. Because absolutely. that penalty's kind of been forgotten. And that was an absolute atrocious penalty, wasn't it? I mean, it was the weakest little hop and the little weakest little, you know, strength-powered penalty you'll ever see. And considering that was the first penalty in a shootout in a final... I would be absolutely raging if I was the manager and that player did that for me because I would just say, what was, what on earth was that all about? You know, you clearly didn't even look interested in taking one and that has, you know, possibly cost us the shootout here. Um, absolutely dreadful. I mean, you know, he would never touch another penalty again for me while I was manager at that club because that was a disgrace. And as you say, luckily for him, you know, bigger things have happened in that game that no one seems to really be dwelling on his penalty. But yeah, an absolute horror show. I will say though, Aspilla Quater's penalty was up there with the best of them, wasn't yeah, it? For a defender. So far, I was like, yeah. wow, that is so nice. Like, <laughs> I mean, that was top bins, you know, that was in. No keeper in the world would have got to that one. Um, that was a brilliant penalty. Um, and in that, it was strange, wasn't it? I mean, there was a new camera angle for those penalties. I've not kind of seen that camera angle before and I don't know whether I liked it or whether I was I was keen on it to be honest you know it, it just looked weird when they were taking them because the goal didn't look right you know looked disfocused um so yeah it was really off-putting camera angle I felt you know but one that a few people liked um you could at least see how close they either were I mean and Sterling's one I thought at the time he'd, he'd hit the bar with that but then you see it goes in um but yeah re- you know some good so a couple of good penalties you know Hazard's penalty was beautiful um I've seen you know a few people moaning about that saying oh yeah, I thought his penalty was lucky but he is a class player and that penalty again was another example of it um but yeah Jorginho a lucky man that Kepa was on the scene with City lifting the Carabao Cup, it's the fourth time they've won that competition in sort of different guises in the last six years. So is it fair to say that they use that competition to their advantage as, you know, we keep harboring on about momentum, but they managed to foster that really well when winning the League Cup because it usually sets them up for bigger things later in the season. 
Yeah, there is that argument, isn't there, that, you know, you win that and it kind of sets you off on a, you know, it, it gets you going, doesn't it? And then you can probably use that to push on for other things. Um, I know that there's been a few teams over the years, haven't they? You know, and I think, you know, Spurs at one point were a team where it happened to and, you know, Wigan were another, you know, sorry, Birmingham were another team. There is the danger that if you're just mid-table when you win that trophy, then you can kind of players then put themselves on the beach afterwards and you don't really get performances out of them after that because they almost have this feeling that they've achieved something for the season. Um, whereas I think if you're fighting for titles and that, then that first trophy can give you that hunger to push on and win more. So I think it kind of can really all depend where you are in, in the league season at that point with that final. But City seal clearly seem to use it as a stepping board to push on and finish the season off winning more things um so yeah they they use it in the right way when we talk of momentum they'll look to continue that in midweek when they face West Ham at home especially as they now find themselves second in the table again Liverpool just about come out of Old Trafford unscathed you couldn't say the same about Man United though it was a day of just weird moments in disappointing matches because when was the last time you saw three players go off injured for the same club in the first 45 minutes yeah, I think the only time I can remember that, I think Mourinho once, didn't he, for Chelsea, made three substitutions in the first half of a game because he was unhappy. And then all of a sudden the curse struck and in the second half they had a player go off injured. Um, that's just real unfortunate for United there, isn't it? You know, at no point can you as a manager, you know, allow or expect that to happen to you. So, yeah, that was real unfortunate for him. And obviously, you know, United are a team that don't want to lose key players at this point of the season because they've just been building up some momentum trying to fight for that fourth place and losing key players is just going to you know cause them a, a bigger issue to carry on over the next few games um but there, it was a kind of it was a little bit of a disappointing game wasn't it in general you know I think we built it up saying this would be great you know don't miss this one two teams that <laughs> yeah. attack one another what and do we cue, know? cue the nil nil <laughs> cue the nil nil draw so I think we should try and steer clear of building it up you know Sky did their job we tried to help them as well and uh, look what we get for it um but yeah that, that's a blow for United and one as you say it's not very often you see that at all I mean, also you've got to consider Liverpool. They had Firmino getting switched for Daniel Sturridge during the same 45 minutes. So, you know, that went up to 50 minutes in terms of the first half. It almost felt like a, a testimonial at times due to the sort of stop-start nature. Then you had Rashford, who was wincing throughout the game. So, for all intents and purposes, May United were playing with like 10 men, although there was 11 on the pitch. There wasn't really much coming out of Rashford. So, I guess the aim then becomes just to frustrate Liverpool, doesn't it? Yeah, I think as you say, once you kind of once you've lost that momentum and some key players are gone, then that that's a massive disruption to your game plan, isn't it? And as you say, Rashford clearly wasn't right, but couldn't come off. So, it, as you say, then it is a case you change your game plan on the fly, don't you? And you now say, right, hold on a minute, we we may now just actually need to make sure we don't come out of this game losing. So that's nothing silly from now on, you know. We won't try to look to attack as maybe as fiercely as we were going to earlier on. Um, and it did just seem to kind of dampen the game down slightly. Um, and again, it was probably the same for Liverpool, because although Firmino's not a 
you know, you wouldn't you wouldn't put him up there as a consistent goal scorer, but he really does help lay lay stuff on, and he's a creative spark for Liverpool. So that probably both teams lost some momentum there, and it kind of threw them both. But and the game just never got going after that, did it? After that first half, it kind of just became bitty, and you know, you could see both teams then suddenly thought, well, actually, getting away from here with a point might be a good result, and uh, we move on to fight another day. Well, Matip had his uh, blushes spared by an offside flag, doesn't it? Apart from that, and maybe Smalling's late miss, there was no real sort of chances of note. So Liverpool go back to the top. As we say, it was a case of almost just avoiding defeat, really. Just get out of Old Trafford unscathed, which they did. At the same time, is there a sense of two points dropped due to United being the walking wounded? I had two Liverpool fans in a sort of group chat in WhatsApp, and uh, one had the one opinion that it was great, you know, we're top, that's all that matters. The other one was like, well, you know, we should have taken the game by the scruff of the neck and actually put the pressure on City. So, as a neutral, what camp would you sit in in those two? I would probably say, given United's resurgence lately, um, then, you, you know, if you come away from a ground like that with a result and at least a point on board, it's better than nothing. So, I guess if you're Liverpool, then you may say, well, you know what? It still keeps it puts us back on top, and there is a slight element of pressure that goes back to City to respond now. You know, whereas if they dropped all three points with City playing West Ham at home, where you can't see them slipping up in that one, then you'd kind of feel that well, that would be a real blow to to Liverpool. So, for me, I you know. I would sit there and say if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd probably come away saying, okay, it could have been a lot worse. Um, Yes, it could have been a lot better. But, you know, we've at least got something out of what was going to be a difficult game for us. Um, And we can just look to go again in the next week. And hopefully, you know, they'll pick up form. I guess if you're a Liverpool fan, you might start to be slightly worried um, about picking up too many draws at the moment lately. So that, that may be something where you feel, well, you know, as much as we've said it before, haven't we? although it might be good to pick up a draw, sometimes you could be better off losing one and then winning the next three rather than, you know, three draws out of that. So they will need to try and just make sure that they don't take their eye off the ball and that they don't lose too much momentum because it's very easy to start, you know, slipping at the wrong time of the season and suddenly too many draws are not are not what you need at this point. Yep, you're absolutely right there, Cole. It was an incredibly quiet game for Mo Salah though, wasn't it? His record against the big six hasn't been all that great this season and Although you could obviously point to the fact it's been outweighed by lots of goals scored against the teams in the rest of the league. So with Liverpool being top, it's not the biggest issue. But why is he not finding that big match spark as he did last season? Yeah, that's it's a hard one, isn't it? I think, I you know, last season, I think he was still a bit of an unknown quantity, wasn't he? You know, although he was flying at certain points... You know, he was still new to the league as such. Although he'd been at Chelsea before, he never really got going there. So, I think maybe this year teams have really, you know, decided to say, well, listen, you know, just just, just really try to mark this guy out the game. And that, that gets rid of one problem. Um, so, it might just be this year that, you know, teams have wised up to him a little bit more, you know, because there was that element where he does like to just cut in from the inside of the box and then try those curlers into the corner. Um, And maybe it's just something defenders and teams have wised up to a little bit. And it's just, you know, taking him, you know, he just needs a bit more, you know, maybe needs to change his game up a little bit. But then at the same time, it is hard, you know, if teams are doubling up on you constantly because they're so worried about you, it's hard to find that space. And, you can only hope then that the rest of your team take advantage that while you're being, you know, doubled up on, there's space elsewhere on the pitch and you need to look for other avenues. But 
he's he's still a class player, you know, one that, you know, you'd still fear in a game. You know, if you saw his name wasn't on the team sheet, you'd be mightily relieved. So, you know, maybe he's just having a little dip of form. But again, I suppose the worry there is you don't want him to have that dip at the wrong time. But all players have this, don't they? You know, I think Ronaldo went for a spell in the Premier League where people were saying about him, you know, oh yeah, he's okay bullying the likes of Bolton and that. But when United play Liverpool or Arsenal, he has quiet games. But those games are tight affairs, so not everyone's going to shine all the time. No, you're absolutely right in that sort of sense. And I don't think you can sort of be expected to be banging in twos and threes each week. But it'll be interesting to see what Salah's natural goal level is, if that makes sense. Because after such a good season last season, by those own standards, it's not quite hit the same height. So it's interesting, say we get to next season and maybe the season after, over like a four-year stretch, will people point to the first one as like some big purple patch of form and then a regression? Or will this season just be a small slump and he, he kicks back on? So obviously we can't answer that for another couple of years. But it'll be interesting to see, you know, like you say, has he been found out to a certain degree and the sort of the unknown quantity is now dissipated and that sort of, key strength he had in his locker is now something he can't sort of utilise. So, you know, like I say, we won't know that for a long time down the road. But interesting to see just how he can continue this goal-scoring form. But if we sort of veer slightly away from Liverpool, a small connection all the same, but we'll look at their former managers, or one of their former managers, I should say. It's Brendan Rodgers, who could well be the, t- a, the Leicester manager by the time you listen to this episode. Carl, does that seem a shrewd appointment? Because it feels like it's almost mission complete for him at Celtic Park. Yeah, I think there is that feeling, isn't there, for him now that, you know, he's probably he's probably achieved all he's going to achieve up in Scotland. You know, that the, the only next thing and aim that you could have if he was a Celtic manager was to do something in Europe. But unfortunately, you know, given the resources that there are, I don't think you're ever going to see one of those Scottish sides at the moment really cause a problem in the Champions League because there is just such a difference and golfing class, isn't there? Um, so, yeah, he probably feels he's done all he can. He, he, there must have been discussions with the board up there and maybe he doesn't feel he's going to get the back in in terms of, you know, in in Scotland itself, you know, for the league and that, they may be, you know, he may feel they're not going to give him the players he wants to push, you know, for the title and that constantly there. So he's obviously maybe thinking, well, this opportunity's here now. I may have left in the summer anyway, so now's the right time, you know, that that's take a job that's there and ready. And let's face it, Leicester's not the worst, you know, it, it's not a dead-end job, is it? You know, there are players there that you think if you can get them going, you, you've got a reasonable squad at Leicester. So he's probably seen a really good opportunity that he knows he can't turn down now. And he, he's, he's achieved all he can up in Scotland with Celtic. Are you slightly surprised that Leicester have not waited till the end of the season? You know, what have interim managers been in the new fashion? Um or are they in a position after Saturday's defeat where they think, do you know what, we can't really afford to just coast this one out because we're looking a little bit nervously over our shoulder now? Yeah, I think clubs don't wait anymore, do they, Dan? You know, I think you can kind of see that. I think clubs now feel once that momentum's gone and, and the tide has turned, then they, they don't they don't hang around anymore. You know, they act, they get, you know, need, some of these clubs just, they, they're not going to think, well, let's just give this guy another couple of weeks. The view is no. He's clearly lost the dressing room. Clearly, players don't want to play for him. 
The fans are unhappy as well, so that's make the move. That's get rid of him, and we'll bring someone into the end of the season. And you know, hopefully, we'll get that bounce of of a change that brings around a turn in form. So I think we see it more and more now because clubs are just not prepared to wait. And with the money that comes from the Premier League, I think that kind of also dictates what what teams do. You know, back in the day when there wasn't that sort of TV money. Yeah, they might have been prepared to wait around and see if things could change. But knowing that if you drop out what you lose in terms of revenue, then clubs are just saying, well, we're not going to wait now. We can make a change. And we know they will get someone in who can probably do as good a job as this guy. I think with Leicester, the writing looked on the wall, didn't it? You know, the the fans haven't been happy for a long while with the football. And then we saw, you know, even at Wembley, the way that Jamie Vardy and certain players were acting, that it looked like they just didn't want to play for play for the guy anymore and it, it seemed once they lost that result at the weekend then you kind of knew what was coming because I, I wasn't sure which way that game could go but I certainly didn't see a, a thrashing like that coming. You can almost see on the touchline when the sort of the third and the fourth were going in for Palace that Pure just sort of mentally checked out at that point and almost sort of knew the writing was on the wall in the next sort of few hours or the next day. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, none of us know the sort of discussions that go on behind the scenes. So you never know whether these managers are kind of told, listen, if there's no upturn in performances over the next three games, then we'll make a decision. But as you say, I think you got the impression. I think you've, you've kind of seen that from him on the touchline for the last couple of weeks that... Once things turn, he, he just looks lost, and he just clearly knows himself. You know, I'm not these these guys are not doing it for me, and there's nothing I can do to change it. And once you do see that, then maybe it is time to just say, look, thank thanks for everything you've done. We'll we'll go in a new direction. Do you think another Premier League side will ever appoint Claudio? Because he's quite uninspiring, and that's not necessarily about the football. It's more about him as a person and a manager. He never really gets a, a fan base on side, which is the criticism that both Leicester and Southampton have volleyed in his direction in the past. So would he be worth the hassle for another Premier League club owner going forward? It does seem strange, doesn't it? Because you know, Southampton hadn't had the worst season under him when they got rid of him, had they? So you kind of were thinking, well, wow, you know, if you can't win fans over having got to a cup final and had the sort of season you've had, then yeah, you do question what's going on there. Um, I always feel we see this kind of merry-go-round of managers, don't we, that once a guy seems to get a job in the Premier League, there'll be another team who look to him at some point. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he turns up again because, you know, he's obviously got some form of Premier League experience behind him now, which there'll always be a club that think, oh, maybe, you know, this will be the club where he gets it right and it turns for him. But... He does kind of look a bit of an uninspiring manager when he's on the sideline, doesn't he? You know, and you can't, as you say, you never really see him. Doesn't look the type who goes in and G's up a, a changing room or that. So maybe a break somewhere else for him would do him good. But I, I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he rocks up somewhere else because it seems there are this pool of managers who basically, you know, they're when the next minute a team sack their manager, they'll look to turn to that little pool, you know, how long will it be before Hughes turns up somewhere else? And that's a manager that for me wouldn't, you know, I, I, if I was a chairman, I certainly wouldn't be turning to him given his, his track record, but there will be a team that do turn to him again at some point. It's incredible now. We've almost got to the point in football where, like you say, there's a pool of managers that are literally hired on the basis of being a firefighter. So someone like, Moy is huge, Allardyce. Like, how has that become a profession in itself? 
Yeah, I mean, with someone like Allardyce, I guess the only thing with someone like Allardyce is you can maybe understand the club turning to him because of that track record where he gets the team out of trouble um, and you'll survive. So I guess, you know, needs must. And if, if you want to look to do that and that's all you're planning for, then why not bring in someone who's got a real good proven record of doing it? Um it, it just, you know, you kind of think when you, it's not the long-term game, is it? It's very short-termist by those sides. And, you know, really, you know, so why not look to give yourself a long-term platform where it's like, well, OK, even if we go down, we think this is the guy that could then bring the club back to where we want it to be. You could look at Huddersfield saying what they've done, you know they've brought in a manager that you kind of get the impression they're not expecting him to keep him up in this this season but they're now bedding him in and letting him you know get his experience ready for next season where they obviously trust him to bring them back up again um but i guess money dictates and if, if you think you can get sam allardyce in and he'll save you from the drop even if it's just by a point or goal difference then that's worth the money you have to pay that guy yeah well like i say if- in terms of Allardyce, he's certainly worth that expenditure that comes with it because more often than not, or well, I think all, all, all the time, he gets the job done, doesn't he? So there is a certain logic and it probably even sort of fits the ideals of Premier League clubs where the short-termism nature of that, you know, they rinse, wash, repeat, get managers in. It's not good if you're sort of one of these proponents who likes to give managers time, but unfortunately that seems to be the, I guess, the sort of negative approach now, isn't it? It's always about seeing what job can be done over the next sort of few months and then we'll sort of shake hands and go again. Um, one of the names that was linked with the Leicester job early was Sean Dyche. He's going nowhere, and he also masterminded a win over uh, Tottenham on Saturday. Now, Carl and I have already looked at that from a Tottenham point of view, and you can check that out on the eSports podcast. But I want to look at it quickly from a Clarets perspective, and more importantly, two men in particular. Firstly, Carl, Tom Heaton. It can be absolutely no coincidence that Burnley's run of going eight league games unbeaten is linked with his return to fitness and first-team football. Yeah, I mean, you know, you have to say at the moment, if you're going on form, then he's probably the the number one choice for England goalkeeper at the moment, isn't he? Because he is having some brilliant games and some of the saves he's pulling off uh, are top class. So, <coughs> yeah, if, you know, right now, uh, you know, you could say that Burnley have got possibly, you know, three of the four England goalkeepers, haven't they? You know, and you've got Heaton, Hart and Nick Pope, there who you know undoubtedly were all goalkeepers that you know uh, look to be in the England squad so he's come in and as you say it's no surprise that their form has turned because he looks really solid and they actually look you know those defenders actually look comfortable with him behind them and he has done really well there's no doubt about it. You mentioned Joe Hart and that was going to be the next uh, player to focus on is there a I don't know. Maybe you could make the case that is he done as a top-level goalkeeper? Can you see his career sort of taking a quiet plunge down towards the championship in the summer? Someone like, you know, that happened to Chris Kirkland, where he's an able sort of man between the sticks, but you probably get the feeling his best days are now behind him. I think with Hart, you was kind of expecting, as in, once you left City... He kind of really needed to go and solidify his place somewhere else. And the fact that he's now, you know, been around a couple of teams and not been able to nail down that number one slot anywhere he's gone. As you say, you kind of see that possibly leading to the downturn of his career now. Because if he, you know, he should have been going to Burnley with the view that I'm going to be number one and there's no questions asked here, you know, I will be number one without a doubt. And his performances just don't don't fill you with confidence at the moment so maybe you know 
come the summer, he may feel another moves on. You know, if Heaton's, you know, seals that number one space to the end of the season and then Pope comes back and he's looking to be number two, then Hart will have to move on. Um, but the fact he hasn't sealed down another number one place yet wherever he's gone would kind of worry me about his long-term, you know, future at the top level and I can't see him getting it back now as you say Kirkland was the same and then suddenly the guy just disappears into you know championship league one level and you know his name's never really mentioned again and unfortunately for Hart you can see it kind of going that way now while we're talking about championship goalkeepers what's happened to Jack Butland I mean this is someone who's been linked with 40 million pound moves to Arsenal and Liverpool at one point is this a case of a player not getting out at the right time and now seeing his career stagnate as a consequence? Yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, there are times where you could say, couldn't you, that, you know, you don't want to be seen as necessarily deserting a sinking ship, but then at the same time, you have to look for your own your own gains every now and then. And he possibly should have, you know, just moved on and not just kind of left himself there. Because as you say, he's he's now, if you like, a forgotten man, isn't he, to be honest? You know, he's, you know no one really mentions him anymore. And it's just because he's not seen... You know, as you say, you're playing for a side that are not setting the world alight in the championship. So you're not on everyone's lips. So, well, who's coming up next year? Oh, Derby might. And Butland's being a massive part of them coming up to where you're like, well, this guy might still have something. You know, I, I think it's just dwindling away. And he may need to have to try and force a move if he can, because he's the sort of player now who wants to try and get himself back in the Premier League at whatever cost, because that's where you're in the spotlight. And then, you know, you can try and work your way back up into that reckoning for England goalkeeper and having other people see you as a real good number one. But yeah, right now he's just kind of disappeared, isn't he? Um, And to be honest, we don't see much of him. So I don't really know how well he's doing or, you know, as he's, as he dropped form, you know, is he playing really well? And, that's something that's going to cost him if he doesn't get himself back at a club where he can be seen more often. Well, I think Stoke are sort of mid-table, you know, not they're not really pushing for the playoffs. So it's a bit of a nothing season. So, like I say, Butler's not really in the limelight. He's not really in circles of, you know, tips for the England sort of uh, frame anytime soon. But at the same time, he is young. So could you perhaps see him leaving Stoke and then being a number two at Premier League club just to get back into people's consciousness sometime soon? Yeah, I mean, that might be what he has to do, doesn't it? You know, you one sort of wonder, and, and this is no disrespect to any of the clubs I'm going to mention, but if, say, someone like a West Ham needed a number two, then, you know, it's it could be worth just thinking, well, I'm going to go there, even knowing I'm number two, but my hope will be I get a run of games at some point and then I can shine again, you know, at someone like Newcastle, you know, somewhere like that, Everton, you know, and that may be the route he has to take, you know, as you say, just get himself as a number two somewhere, and then hope you get a you know you get a run of three or four games where you can come in and and excel and then suddenly people go oh actually hold on a minute you know we, we're not going to drop him he's now could be, possibly become number one if he keeps this up so that may be the sort of move he has to make in the summer. Okay, that's the championship chat quota field for this week and one team that will certainly be there next season is Huddersfield. So Newcastle got a huge win although as we said last week Cole it's one they simply had to get and almost an expectation. Yeah, I, I kind of I felt confident Newcastle would get the job done here, um, even if it was a scrappy, horrible 
sort of one nil win, but it probably was a little bit more comfortable for them than that. And obviously, you know, Tommy Smith getting sent off after 20 minutes, you know, when you're a team that are down the bottom and you just want to try and go somewhere and even just scrap a draw or something to see if that can get you going again, someone getting sent off after 20 minutes isn't what you need. And that just kind of seals your fate from that point onwards. And Newcastle did, you know, they, they did the job they needed to. And, you can see them, you know, getting results like that against certain teams at home. So, yeah, job well done for Newcastle. And, you know, their form is picking up. So, you know, they'll be very happy, I'm sure, with that. Yeah, 10 points for the last 15, I believe it is. And that uh, new signing, Almiron, looks like it could be useful. At the same time, beating Huddersfield is not necessarily the best barometer of quality, is it? No, that's right. I mean, there, there'll be tougher tests to come, wouldn't there? So, Stand, as you say, standing out against Huddersfield is great, but at the same time, you know, we, we know they're, they're championship fodder at the moment. So if he can start putting those sort of performances in against bigger sides and better teams, then you'd be confident they've got a good signing on their hands, but possibly too early to tell. And yeah, as you say, you wouldn't you wouldn't take that game as being something that you gives you your barometer of what sort of player you've signed. Another side that looked championship bound is Fulham. And although Javier Hernandez, the sneaky little shit, bundled the ball over the line with his arm uh, for West Ham's level up, you have to look at Fulham's defence as the overriding issue as their defeat, and especially the goalkeeper, really, on Friday night, would you not say? Oh, yeah, that, that that was shocking, wasn't it? You know, for some reason, every time West Ham got a corner, you, you just got the impression they could score from it because Fulham would just look so scared at the back and dealing with anything that was coming in in the air. Um, you sort of thought West Ham could score at will from corners and that. It really strange, wasn't it? Because that game started and within the first five minutes, Fulham could easily have been two up and you'd been thinking, cool, what's going on here? Um, but West Ham got hold of the game, you know, as the game went on, West Ham just got hold of it, and you could see that the pressure was building, it was building, you could see a goal was coming, and then once West Ham got level, you kind of just felt confident they'd go on from that point and get the result, and then in the end, it was quite comfortable. It's really showing, you know, Fulham just, just don't look ready for this division yet you know maybe it's come a bit too early in their development but when you've got a goalkeeper almost punching them into his own goal you know with the sort of way he came out for those crosses then that doesn't help at all and it's slightly disappointing seeing that players like Sessignon because I had high hopes for someone like him but I've yet to really see him have a game for Fulham where I see what the hype was about you know it's really strange you know there was a lot of hype around him um, last season and I've yet to see a game where I think oh yeah I can see what the hype was about this player um, but again maybe it's just he's not in the right team for his development now maybe he should have looked for a move in the summer to see if it could progress him but I'm sure the experience will do him good and he'll probably be one that moves on when Fulham go down because like you say Dan I think Fulham and Huddersfield are the two certs now I mean Wednesday night we'll talk about that one very quickly there's a uh... I guess a six-pointer in the truest te- uh, sense of the term because Southampton play host to Fulham. Now, for the loser, I mean, Southampton have probably got a little bit more life in them, but if Fulham lose that one, then it really is, you know, coasting out to the end of the season and just sort of seeing um, well, what they can do before relegation impacts them in May. Yeah, I, I, I honestly think they're gone. I, I think they know it. I think Huddersfield and Fulham both know. Um, but as you say, that's the sort of that that game for me is if if you're a Southampton fan now, you are sitting there saying this is 
a must-win game because if we don't get nothing against Fulham, then I'd really be fearing if I was a Southampton fan because I think the writing could then start being on the wall for that for that side because they really need to pick up points. And if you're not getting points against someone like Fulham who look, you know, championship bound already, then I would I would be there's serious issues going on there. Yeah, I mean. Should Fulham win, I guess it's a case of just de- delaying the inevitable, really, sort of thinking, OK, well, we've got three points, but in the grand scheme of things, what does it really do? But from a Southampton point of view, you're thinking, we fucked up here, because, like I say, if we can't beat Fulham at home, then where else are we going to get the points? So the pressure's arguably be more on Southampton, do you not think? Yeah, 100%. You know, as you say, for me, if Southampton don't get a result there, that, that could be kind of a season-defining game, because the the kind of feeling that a defeat to a team like Fulham could have on you at this point of the season could really set the tone for the rest of the games. Because, as you say, you will start then thinking, well, if we can't beat these, well, how are we going to fare when we come up against better sides? Um, you know, And let's face it, you don't want to get in that position now. You need wins to build up confidence, and Southampton desperately need a win to get them going. If we go back to Friday night, that West Ham win was the first in a Carl's prediction doubleheader that he got spot on because the second half was Watford and their emphatic win over Cardiff. So, Carl, Watford are continuing to look very useful at the moment and it could be, well, a case of they've got two Europa League routes to pursue now because you've got league progress and also a cup quarterfinal against Palace. So you, you never really know. It's not a case of either or. It could be both. Yeah, Watford looked really good, didn't they? They just look a solid team at the moment where, you know, previous seasons they could go away in that sort of game and and come unstuck and just have really good home form. But this year they've been solid wherever they go and they've picked up results at grounds. You probably wouldn't expect them to get results. Um, I really like what you're seeing from Watford at the moment. Um, I didn't expect them to win that game as comfortably as they did. I really didn't. Uh, when I, when you saw that scoreline and saw the sort of goals that they got, then they're looking really useful. And as you say, right now they've got two avenues to to look at for you know having a successful season. They'd consider where they're finishing at the moment in the league as success, but with the chance of also winning a, a trophy as well, then what a season that could be for Watford. And that's the kind of season, if you're a Watford fan, you want to have, isn't it? You know, you know you're not going to be relegation bound, but if you can be pushing the top six or seven and ending with a shout with a winning a trophy, then you can't ask for nothing more. Yeah, ultimately, for sort of a club of that size in that bracket, that is, you know, you can't really get much more successful, can you? Say if you win a cup finish seventh and your you know, expectations were just mid-table, then you've overachieved massively. So, you know, it's looking good for Watford. And I think, you know, you touched on the goals they scored on Friday. I don't think Match of the Day quite did it credit because they didn't show it all. But their fourth goal was like a two-minute build-up and everyone touching the ball and, you know, just like free-flowing football. And it's not the kind of football you'd necessarily um, link with Watford, but it looked really, really special, didn't it? Yeah, it was a really good goal. And I mean, I like some of their players going forward. You know, Deeney is always a handful. And I must admit, you know, he's a real underrated player, I think, at the moment, Troy Deeney. Because I bet if you ask most defenders, a striker that they don't want to play against week in, week out, Deeney would be right up there because he looks a real handful. Um, and Delafeu, well, you know, he can show glimpses of the sort of form he and finishing he produced in that game. So they've got some real good options. I guess the issue for what now is those players are shining and you kind of get the impression bigger fish might be swimming around in the summer and they could just pick a few of those players off which then kind of knocks Watford back two or three steps in their progress doesn't it 
Yeah, I guess this is always the danger because if you look at like the footballing hierarchy, I guess Tottenham are in a certain similar position when you sort of look at the clubs above them. And I think it's just football's natural order. So then you'd probably sort of think, would Tottenham take players from Watford? You know, and that's the, yeah. the kind of circle that um, always is perpetual in football. But that's, that's the trouble, isn't it? It's like with Charleston. You get these players and you kind of know if they have a successful season, you always kind of, as a Watford fan, thinking, well, we may only have this bloke for one season because the minute he sets the world alight, we know the top four or five are going to come calling and they'll just take him off us without any problem. I mean, it's quite ironic you mentioned Richardson because although he's had glimpses of uh, you know good showing at Everton, Watford have been no worse off for me sale, have they? No, and, and that's where you'd have to give them credit because you know there was it was a little while ago that Southampton were the team doing that, weren't they? You know they'd lose their best players in the summer, but bring through someone else who you kind of then said, well, you couldn't tell Southampton have lost players because they're having just as good a season, and Watford are doing that at the moment. You know, Richarlison, Silver going looked like it could possibly undo them. But again, they've had a resurgence, they've brought in the right players and, and that's credit to their scouting there because they're obviously doing something really well. And Watford, they overtook Wolves on Saturday after Wolves were held by Bournemouth in a game littered with penalties. Now, I think the first two certainly were. The last one, though, was a little bit iffy, wasn't it? Because I don't think personally it was even inside the box. Yeah, no, that that last one, as you say, Dan, the first two, you know, yeah, there's no questions there about it. But that last one, yeah, I mean... <laughs> I tell you now. I, I think you know again. That's another one where next season if Vars in, that's certainly not a penalty. But um, I was, we were surprised when we we said that'd be a free flowing game, um, and there were good chances in that game, just not the finishing that needed to go along with it. But I think that's again another game where I don't think either team will be disappointed with that result. You know, Wolves have been really good this year, so Bournemouth probably felt that they've got a decent result at home there. You know, Bournemouth are no mugs either, so Wolves probably feel coming away with a point is is better than some teams have achieved at the vitality. So I think both teams have come away happy from that one. Yeah, I mean that point takes Bournemouth um, tenth in the table, so they're just about on the fringes of a race for seventh. Probably the gap's a little bit too much, but for Wolves, you know, although they've moved down a position, it's just goal difference. So, you know, like I say, it's not a bad result for either side. For Bournemouth, it just about keeps their season alive because we were talking last week about are they already on the beach? There's still something just about to play for, isn't there? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the problem is for Bournemouth is now if you think if they get another couple of wins somewhere, then it won't be long before their games do just turn into seeing the season out. Um so, yeah, that's a real danger, isn't it? But then I guess if, you, if you're Bournemouth, each season there is just about staying in the league and then being able to look what you can do in the summer and say, right, OK, we finished 10th. Can we, can, what can we do to maybe get us to start finishing 8th and then 7th? Um, they're never going to have the resources where they can really look to match the top five or six because, you know, given their ground and capacity and that, it's just never going to, you can't see it happening for them unless they suddenly look at building a new stadium and in, and getting bigger and bigger. But right now it's each season as it comes and I think they'd look at this one as a successful season. And Bournemouth go to Arsenal on Wednesday and they've sort of, I don't know about snuck under the radar, but they're back in fourth in a race that is looking incredibly tight and looks tight by the week because Chelsea got a game in hand and they could go to the same points as Arsenal and those, you know, although they've got to win that game, Man United sit a point behind the Gunners, so it's advantage Arsenal at the moment, they've got a bit of momentum, um, can you see that kicking on? Hopefully we don't want it to kick on on Saturday because they face us at Wembley, but things are starting to sort of click again after a little bit of an iffy spell at the turn of the year. 
yeah, it looked like it could turn it could turn a little horrible for him at one point. But I think you know I, I can see them getting enough wins. I don't, I think now that race for the fourth with them and Chelsea, I think that's going to go down to the wire because you can see both of them slipping up again. Um, obviously, I, well, I say race for fourth. That probably feels you know as a Spurs fan right now. There's no guarantee that that's, you know, just between them and Chelsea for fourth, is it? You know, if the results go the wrong way, then it, there could be a real battle on for third and fourth. Um, but I, I think Arsenal may just edge Chelsea out for the race for the top four. Um, oh, so you've got United as well. But those injuries, though. Know. Yeah, that, those injuries could really kill United and that momentum. I think with those three, I, I don't think you could call it, you know, I think, but all of those teams can get results when they need to. Um, and if Ar- Arsenal look decent at home, I don't think there's any problems there. Arsenal, It'll be Arsenal's away form that could cause them the real issues. Um, and like as you say, that's hope there, that, that carries on this weekend. Um, but I, I'm, you know... I think Arsenal just need another couple of windows under Emery to get in players he wants. But you could see them, they're working, they're working the right way, I think. It looks like it's improving. And if he could bring in a couple of players in areas they're looking for, then you could see them being a threat to that top four again regularly. Yeah, I mean, it is a work in progress, but the progress might be accelerated if they can get back into the top four or, you know, win the Europa League this season and get into the Champions League. So... I mean, in terms of who's going to finish fourth, it flips every week and you think, oh, you're not going to do it. And then you think, oh, maybe Chelsea. And then you think, well, actually, there's no reason why Arsenal can't go and do it themselves. So, you know, like you say, it's going to take a very brave man to predict who ends up in fourth place. But, Carl, you're going to have to be brave for the next couple of minutes. So I'm just going to whittle through the uh, the Wednesday games. I just want a quick, uh, quick fire prediction from all six. So if we go no to um, St Mary's first, Southampton, Fulham, what do you think on that one? I am going to... Uh, do you know what? I'm going to go for a Fulham sneak in a win there. Oh, then. wow. I think I'll go for possibly a one or two one Fulham. I think there's going to be an upset, and I think I think Southampton could be in trouble. Which is not the news Southampton fans would want, like you say. If Fulham win that, and Southampton then sort of think, okay, well, we're in real trouble there because the you know teams above them are getting points, and it looks a little bit murky for them. Arsenal, Bournemouth. Can you see the Gunners um, firing on all cylinders at home? Yeah, I can't see them. I can't see them coming unstuck there. I don't think it'd be an easy game, but I think they're legit with their firepower. So for me, an Arsenal win there. Yeah, I get the feeling something like a two nil probably uh, do for the Gunners. Yeah, there. yeah, two 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 nil or three one round that sort of scoreline. I think Selhurst Park now and Crystal Palace. They'll have um, a lot of well. They were soaring after their win on Saturday. They face a Man United uh, team with multiple injuries. Could those injuries hamper them when they make the trip to South London? They could, yeah. I mean, that that could be a big blow for them at this point. But I'd either go for a draw or menu to scrape it sort of 1-0 um, and, and get the win they need. But, you know, yeah, I don't see United losing. So either a draw or United win there for me. I've marked that one down as a draw because I just think now Batshuayi's got a goal. You know, he's got that sort of small millstone around his neck. And I just think United... Just those few sort of injuries are not... Obviously, they play well against Liverpool, but they probably arguably raise their game due to the um, occasion. So there'd be a sort of a, a natural coming down. So I think Palace might sort of feel they're there for the taking and I think they can get something out of that. Um, if we stay in London, Chelsea top them. Arguably the biggest game of Wednesday. What's your prediction on that one? Bias not included. So 
Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go away from what we spoke about on the East Spurs pod. So for me, I think that extra time and penalties will just cause, you know, we'll take it out of Chelsea and, you know, Spurs will start taking over that game in the second half. So for me, I'm, I'm still going to go uh, a two, I think a 2 nil Spurs, but I'll see a Spurs win okay, in the mate. week. Uh, let's go up to the league leaders now, Anfield. So Liverpool against Watford, we've just been singing... Watford's praises. Can they do anything against Jurgen Klopp's men? Oh, this this is a tight one. I see Liverpool winning this, unfortunately. Um, but I think it'll be close. You know, that won't be an easy game. Possibly you know, 2-1 Liverpool. But I think Liverpool will get the win they need there. Yeah, I think they'll... Um, yeah, just edge that. I think 2-1's probably on the money there. Maybe even Watford might take the lead, just make it a little bit sort of tense. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and City, off the back of their Carabao Cup success... Can they put West Ham to the sword and apply more pressure on Liverpool? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I could see City, you know, n- not strolling this one because West Ham are not a bad side. But I think this will be a comfortable sort of 3-0, 3-1 round that sort of mark. But yeah, City win for me. Yeah, I've got this one marked as over three and a half in terms of total goals. I think there will be goals. I don't think West Ham are going to get routed. But City, once you know, once they're in the mood, as we've referenced a couple of shows now, that they've got the bit between their teeth at the moment. I can't see that stopping in, uh, in midweek we're going to have to stop now though Carl because we've hit the hour so uh, thanks ever so much for all your efforts as per it's been an absolute blast I hope you'll join me sometime soon mate yeah no worries Dan been a pleasure mate thank you mate as always don't forget to visit loserpool.com uh, create an account there's a free pool going at the moment so don't forget that and it just leaves me to say that my name's Dan Tracy this is The Real Football Cast in association with Loserpool and until next time goodbye Podcast Network.